Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is Women and Money Matters, and this is episode 3.4, Women and Credit. So if you remember episode 3.1 on the early history of money, credit is as old as civilization itself. The Sumerians had it, the Romans had it, definitely not a new concept. But throughout most of history, credit was pretty unregulated by modern standards. If you could convince someone with cash to loan it to you, there you were. If not, out of luck. At the same time, if you had money to lend, you could charge whatever interest you wanted, as long as you could convince someone to sign on the dotted line. This is not to say that credit was entirely unregulated. A great many of the ancient legal codes involved credit, with the most obvious being the regulation of jubilee or debt forgiveness years. The book of Deuteronomy specifies a seven-year period before debts were canceled, but when you realize that the book of Leviticus loosens that up to 50 years, you can't help suspecting that the financial sector had an effective lobby organization even then. Who knows whether it was enforced even at 50 years? The Code of Hammurabi has some helpful advice for debtors too, or at least for the family members of a debtor. For it says that, If a man is in debt and sells his wife, son, or daughter, or binds them over to service, for three years they shall work in the house of their purchaser or master. In the fourth year they shall be given their freedom. I'm not sure I'd be too super grateful for that as the wife of a debtor, but there you are. Regulation. And Hammurabi did also cancel debts to the state four times during his reign. But still, this isn't exactly government overreach. Nothing in the Code of Hammurabi says women can't be debtors. Neither does it help them to be so. In theory, Roman women were mostly locked out of financial transactions on account of their lightness of the mind. But as in other things, that varies according to the exact time, place, and circumstances, and in any case, the official histories written by men were not necessarily fully aware of what the women were up to. At least some Roman women got credit by borrowing from each other. At Pompeii, two wax tablets record the fact that freed woman Popea Note borrowed 1,450 sesterci from the rich woman Decidia Margaris. As collateral, Decidia Margaris borrowed two slaves from her with the right to sell them if Popea did not pay her back. Voila credit. Also at Pompeii, a woman called Faustilla appears to have been running a predatory lending business as women borrowed small amounts, such as 15 to 20 denarii, with up to 45% annual interest. Ouch. Women in medieval and early modern Europe also were both creditors and debtors. Now, it is true that they don't make a huge percentage of the high-value loans, but they are not absent either. For example, in 1410 and 1414, Elizabeth de Clinton loaned large amounts of money to Warwickshire businesses in what appears to be venture capital. Beatrice Lavender, a widow in London, spent six years as a successful financier lending to male-owned nearby businesses. We know this because the loans weren't always repaid, and these women sued, but the point is they weren't alone. Women as creditors used both their land and their dowries to generate money to lend out. Most of us, sadly, have more in common with the debtors than with the creditors, so you may be interested to know that in the 1300s, women in Nottingham, Chester, and Winchester formed anywhere from 5 to 16% of the debtors brought to court. Nothing like 50% true, but hardly absent either. In general, widows are more involved than married or never married women. And also in general, when we look at just the low-value loans, the percentage of women involved goes up. 
suggesting that women weren't using credit to establish grand international businesses. They were just going about the business of life with the medieval equivalent of a credit card. What would be different from today's world is that both debtor and creditor likely lived nearby and likely saw each other regularly about town. So the decision of whether or not to lend wouldn't be built on a trademarked credit score algorithm. It would rather be built on reputation, references from people you knew, and what the creditor can guess about your income from your house and your dress and their own personal relationship with you. The Industrial Revolution upset this balance a little. When crops began to be shipped all over the world, farmers would buy their goods at a local store on credit, expecting to pay their bill all at once after the harvest. Factory workers often had to buy their goods at a company store so that their bill would be deducted from their wages. Since the prices were often ruinous, it really became a form of debt peonage from which a worker could never escape. The more familiar modern forms of credit come from the automobile. Car makers wanted to sell more cars, but many consumers could not afford the price all at once. Enter financing. In the 20s and 30s, bankers began to enter the consumer credit world, especially after the Federal Housing Administration decided to back debts for home repair and modernization. After World War II, consumer credit exploded. In 1943, outstanding credit in the U.S. was $6.1 billion. Six years later, it was $20.3 billion, and it only continued to grow. Incomes were up, employment was high, and there was always plenty to buy. Urbanization was also a factor, since farms are usually at least partially self-sufficient, with less need for cash than a city family, which can produce almost none of the goods it needs. And then again, the baby boom increased the need, because younger people on average have fewer resources with which to buy the things they need, but they are usually a very good investment, as they have so many working years ahead of them. But the growth of this credit system largely occurred while most women were outside the labor market, so the procedures weren't geared towards them. Even for women who were employed, they were paid only 58% of men's wages in 1968, and that is something which creditors naturally are concerned about. So here are some common issues women faced when applying for credit in the early to mid-20th century. If you were a single woman, you might be denied credit if you applied without the co-signature of a male relative. This was true even if you had a job and were supporting yourself. The rationale was that a single woman was obviously about to get married, at which point you would quit your job, have babies, and default on your loan, obviously. Or, if you found a particularly enlightened bank, you might be able to get credit and establish a credit history. But if you then got married, all transactions would cease as far as your name was concerned and would be reported in your husband's name, even if you were the original account holder and even if you were still working and paying the bills. Now, you might think that it doesn't really matter, except that if you ever divorced or perhaps your husband died and you needed credit in your own name, it suddenly turns out that you have no credit history. Financially, you don't exist, as if you don't have other problems to worry about in those circumstances. Some widows went to the trouble of concealing their husband's death so as to keep the credit going. There was even a saying for it, a dead man's credit is better than a live woman's. Or, perhaps you're still married and applying for a mortgage jointly. If your income is going to figure into the discussion, then you might be required to submit a doctor's note saying that you are sterile or on birth control and promise that you will continue to use it. Otherwise, only your husband's income counts. 
So there's a wealth of problems and assumptions here, and I didn't even mention what happens to your chances if you happen to be a black woman. For a specific case, let's take a look at one woman named Emily Card. Card was a long way from being your average American woman. She held an MPA from Harvard and a PhD in political science from Columbia University. In 1968, she was a young lecturer at the University of California. She was also married, but she was the breadwinner, as her husband was a full-time student and held no job at the time. The Bank of America had this nifty new thing called a Bank AmeriCard, which you now know as a Visa card. So Emily Card went down to her local Bank of America and submitted her application, noting her job, her substantial earnings, and her marital status. Her application came back denied, with a letter that said, and I quote, Since you are married, we cannot give you an application in your own name. If your husband would like a card, we are enclosing an application for him. Right, so a UC lecturer doesn't qualify, but they are happy to have an application from a student with no income. The difference between Emily Card and the millions of other women who faced similar problems is that Emily Card saved the letter, and she had options. Not that she got her card right away. She didn't. But in 1973, it was her first day on the job as a Senate fellow, and the National Commission on Consumer Finance published a 300-page report on the state of consumer credit in the country. The way this report is summarized in one law review I read of it you get the impression that the 300 pages are all about women and credit, since it says that it concluded that there were, quote, widespread instances of unwarranted discrimination in the granting of credit to women. According to Emily Card, in fact, only two out of the 300 pages discussed women's problems, but it was nonetheless the first official acknowledgement that maybe things were not all fairness and logic and genuine risk analysis in the world of credit. Card approached Senator Bill Brock, Republican from Tennessee, about the issue. He agreed that in a world with increasing women entering the workforce, many were perfectly creditworthy, but still could not obtain credit. Emily Card began drafting some legislation, which Senator Brock sponsored. Like any bill, it required a great amount of compromise and political foot shuffling prior to the vote. Women's organizations and banking organizations and housing experts were all called in and visited and coaxed. The American Bankers Association was against it. Some provisions were relaxed, and some women were upset about that. But it passed the Senate on July 23, 1973, 90 to 0, which I must say sounds truly outrageously bipartisan in the modern world. The Nixon White House and the Justice Department got behind it. Interestingly, the banking subcommittee on the House side was led by Leonore Sullivan of Missouri, the only woman in Congress who didn't want to support it. Emily Card sort of leaves us to believe that Sullivan was somehow against women having credit, but in fact Sullivan's complaint was just the opposite. She thought the bill's credit discrimination provisions were too weak. On the other side was the credit industry. As one creditor wrote, any grant or denial of credit is by its very nature discriminatory. That is, in order to survive economically, every credit grantor must discriminate between those whom he believes will pay their debts and those who will not. All very true, I admit, but it missed an essential point. Creditors are human beings, and human beings are terrible at risk assessment. The assumption that a single woman was necessarily on the point of marriage was false as was the assumption that a married woman was about to have children 
as was the assumption that a mother would necessarily quit her job, as was the assumption that if that happened, the bills would not be paid. As many feminists pointed out, and have been proved right, granting credit to women was an enormous business opportunity for creditors. Women represented a significant expansion of the customer base for those very creditors. The Equal Credit Opportunity Act was signed into law in 1974. It prohibited discrimination based on sex or marital status. In 1976, Congress amended it to include race, color, religion, national origin, and age. So American lawmakers did their part. But of course, having the right to equal credit is just a piece of the problem. In 1979, one study reported that only 43% of American women surveyed even knew that it was illegal for creditors to discriminate based on sex. Only 20% knew that it was illegal to discriminate based on marital status. And obviously, it's difficult to exercise a right you don't know that you have. My local library still has on its shelves a delightful little book published in 1978 called New Credit Rights for Women. You can tell how much things have changed since 1978 by the fact that the book has a $2 price printed on the front and that in the sample monthly budget the authors chose $200 as a representative rent payment. I dream of paying only $200 for my housing. So yes, prices have gone up just a titch. The book also has a helpful picture of a cash dispensing machine, in case you haven't seen one, but mostly it gives a detailed explanation of how credit works and specific details of how to get it, why to get it, and how to recognize when you are being cheated. Sometimes the level of detail seems almost comical, Until you remember that even today, people across the board, both men and women, are remarkably uninformed about finances. The most intriguing thing in the book, however, is that it suggests quite seriously that the easiest place to get a loan might be a feminist credit union which requires all its members to belong to a feminist organization or live in a household with one who does, and that if there is not such a credit union where you live, your women's organization should consider starting one complete with an address where you can write for the rules and procedures on how to establish one. My mind boggles, quite honestly, but it shows how difficult it was for many women to get credit through ordinary means, that you would even consider just starting your own credit union, which was certainly not a thought that had ever crossed my mind before. Several years later, Emily Card was interviewing Gloria Steinem for Ms. Magazine. Gloria Steinem was the founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus, which helps get women elected. She helped establish the Take Our Daughters to Work Day. She was outspoken and controversial on a number of women's issues. And yet, even after all of those experiences, she reported to Card that she had never seen her own credit report, that she had never bought a car or a house, and that in the home she had grown up in, her father handled the money, and handled it badly from the sounds of it. Her mother's contribution to finances was to worry. So she had written and fought for women's representation, employment, and a host of other issues, but had still inherited completely traditional gender roles with regard to money. Now, I'm aware that this is just the story of American women getting access to credit. The story is different in every other country. But the idea of allowing women more access to credit has gained popularity worldwide. In 1983, a Bangladeshi man named Muhammad Yunus founded a local bank in his village. In subsequent years, he made microloans to 7.5 million borrowers, and almost all of them were women with no collateral, earning Yunus the title of founder of the microfinance movement. 
His borrowers mostly band together in groups of five women called kutas. Each kuta meets weekly and shares the responsibility for repaying the loans, thus spreading out the risk that one of them will hit on bad luck and default. The bank's microloans have been calculated up to the tune of $3 billion, and while Eunice originally did have money from aid agencies, the bank did become completely independent and profitable. In 1990, Lynn Patterson and Carmen Velasco founded Pro Mujer, a South American imitator of Eunice's Bangladeshi bank. The borrowers at Pro Mujer may borrow as little as $200, but it allows them to buy livestock, sell tortillas, or open coffee shops. Predatory lending is nothing new in economically depressed areas, but the microfinance movement is attempting to correct that, and one of their strategies is to turn the age-old financial advice on its head. Popular wisdom among these groups and their borrowers is that women are actually more credit-worthy than men. Men, these women claim, are more likely to spend their money on alcohol. Wives and mothers handle the money better. Whether that's empirically true or not, I have no idea. But certainly these women have proved that many women can and do pay back their loans when given the opportunity, regardless of whether they are married or have kids or whatever. Experian is one of the three major credit bureaus in the U.S., and according to them, the average woman's credit score is 704, which is just one insignificant point below that of men at 705. Apparently men have more credit card debt, which surprised me, but women have more open accounts, which doesn't surprise me. Overall, men carry more debt in almost every category, and it is not clear to me whether that means women are managing their money better, hence less need for debt, or whether women are still facing some cultural barriers, hence less access to debt, which is not the same thing at all. The one category where women have more debt than men is student loans, where we have 2.7% more. What joy. Now, I have recently seen a couple of young whippersnappers on Facebook post something about how boomers had it so easy because they didn't have to worry about a credit score to get a mortgage. It is true that the credit score system is far from perfect and causes a lot of headaches for those who end up on the wrong side of it. However, I will point out that the credit score system allows many women to get a mortgage, which is a lot better than a blanket ban on women getting a mortgage at all. And since I am neither a whippersnapper nor a boomer, I gotta say, the thing that blew my mind away while researching this issue is just how recent it is. My mother might well have been denied credit purely on the basis of her gender. So I called her and asked, and she wasn't denied credit, but probably because she never applied until after she was married. The point is, if you're a woman and you've got a credit card or a mortgage with your name on it, there are some boomer women and some pre-boomer women and legislators to thank for it. Sources were tough this week, being almost entirely out of print. But if you check out the website, herhalfofhistory.com, you will see some listed. I will also include some links to the major U.S. credit bureaus where, if you are American, you can check your own credit history for free once a year. I recommend doing it. It can be surprising. If you can drop a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or any other app you might be using, I will be eternally grateful. And I hope you tune in next week to hear about dowry and bride price. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. 
We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.